Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues Continues. The No Miki Show Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen on the social platform's algorithm. One of the most shocking pieces of information that I brought out of Facebook um, that I think is essential to this disclosure is political parties have been quoted in Facebook's own research saying, we know you changed how you pick out the content that goes in the home feed. And now if we don't publish angry, hateful, polarizing, divisive content, crickets. We don't get anything. And we don't like this. We even know our constituents don't like this. But if we don't do these stories, we don't get distributed. And so it used to be that we did very little of it. And now now we have to do a lot of it because we have jobs to do. And if we don't get traffic and engagement, we'll lose our jobs. One of the internal Facebook studies on the new algorithm concludes, quote, the current set of financial incentives our algorithms create does not appear to be aligned with our mission. What does that mean? So Facebook's mission is to connect people all around the world. When you have a system that you know can be hacked with anger, right, it's easier to provoke people into anger, and publishers are saying, oh, if I do more angry, polarizing, divisive content, I get more money. Facebook has set up a system of incentives that uh, is pulling people apart. And yet it's profitable. It's very profitable for content producers, and it's profitable for Facebook because people continue to engage. When you're dealing with disinformation and Mm. misinformation, what are some of the things that you're seeing? So Facebook has done experiments where they take brand new accounts. So Facebook has said before, You're complaining about the misinformation you're seeing. It takes two to tango, right? You know, you picked your friends. You picked the topics that you engage with. Don't just blame us. It's on you. So they've taken brand new accounts, so no friends. And all they've done is follow Donald Trump, Melania, Fox News, and like a local news source. And then all they did was click on the first 10 things that Facebook showed them. Or if Facebook suggested a group, they joined that group. Right, so they're not doing any conscious action here. There's just one tang going. And within a week, you see QAnon. Within two weeks, you see things about white genocide. Right? And you can say, how did that happen? Why are these the things that Facebook is choosing to show you? And it's because those things get the highest engagement. What is engagement-based ranking? Facebook right now is trying to optimize for what it calls meaningful social interactions. And those are reacts, likes, comments, reshares. Every time when someone takes one of those actions, clicks through a link, that is engagement. And Facebook goes and looks at all the things that you've clicked on, and it makes a model of you. Facebook's own research says publishers know you are more likely to engage with angry content. There is a perfect reverse correlation where the angrier you are, the more traffic leaves Facebook and goes to your publishing site. And so I guarantee you, publishers all around the world 
are looking at those visits from Facebook and saying, ah, if we make more angry content, we'll get more distribution. For Facebook. Okay. Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. It is Wednesday, October 6th, and you just watched uh, some of the seismic, and I say seismic, that's intentional, um, allegations being made by a whistleblower who worked on Facebook's internal uh, operation to address some of their issues with bias and algorithmic issues and uh, yada, yada. You heard what she had to say about democracy and how folks are, quoting me, radicalized. Um, on the show, you know, we talk about this all the time and sometimes it can be complicated because we challenge people who are choosing to profit off of the way that these algorithms function. Uh, how a video goes viral based on fighting and shouting and attacking and hate. And oftentimes that hate is directed at women. So why do we talk about these issues? I mean, we are one of the few shows that is hosted by a woman on the political left on YouTube. And I talk about that all the time. And we, we talk about it on Fridays and we address that by having women on on Fridays and talking about issues related to women um, in a more intersectional way. Why do we do that? We do it partly to make a point to an audience that is primarily male because they're not necessarily seeing this in their feed. What most people, not just men, most people on Facebook, this is a different platform, are seeing is generated by this algorithm, which is incentivizing hate. It is more, people are more likely to interact with hate and anger and outrage in debate than they are with investigative series. And when Facebook chose to change their algorithm in a way that they thought was going to benefit <laughs> the community by making it about community rather than information and viral videos, what they lost in that was some of these viral videos were coming from you know, uh, there were information videos. Well, there was now this telling you about uh, a new a new piece of legislation that was dealing with uh, pollution in your, your city or your community. Now it's about, my friend said this, let's get in debate on this, et cetera, et cetera. And these are my beliefs. And then suddenly, you know, when you don't have fact-checking, when you don't have institutions, when you don't have um, oversight and we don't have diversity of opinion and it's built off of rage, and engagement, engagement, which is often a response to rage, you're not having quality information. And then misinformation spreads, conspiracies thread, and communities are built and grown out of that, that spread, uh, that outrage and that hate. This is not new. This is not something that has been formed out of Facebook. This is the human condition. This is how fascism in the most organic forms spread. She talks about how political parties are angry that they have to share things by making it, you know, masking an outrage because it's the only way their content gets spread. And by content, I mean, like, if you're the Democratic Party and you want to keep people engaged with the election, you know, you have to make everything an outrage. So we got angry oftentimes because it was all about uh, Trump's, you know, stupid action that day rather than the, the content of his legislation Part of that is because it was being incentivized. The only way for the Democratic Party or Joe Biden or, or Bernie Sanders to stay in the mix on Facebook was to address some sort of outrage from the other side, making it that sport, that blood sport. Do you remember that line? If it bleeds, it reads. 
Well, that's the line I used to be about the newspapers. You know, if it bleeds, it reads. But newspapers also understood that with those stories, with the Kardashian stories, with the bleeds, it reads stories, those things paid for the newspapers back then so that the newspapers could do the quality work, the investigative work. Facebook is using this concept of keeping the community, the global community together, whatever that means, that gobbledygook, to escape their obligations as, an, as a platform that actually does spread information and news. And, and, and as a result, they do not want to take any responsibility. I think the reason why people are so scared of Facebook is because of the one-on-one -on -one personal communication. I trust the person in my community more than I trust the Democratic Party. But if the information my person in my community is getting or what they're feeling is very similar to what I'm feeling in my community because XYZ hasn't happened and they're putting the blame on the Democrats rather than the Republicans in power or vice versa, you know, the Democrats and their community are putting the blame on progressives. That's how these ecosystems are solidified. Now add to that, if your audience, let's take it over to YouTube now. If your audience is majority male because of a legacy of Gamergate that has grown this little slice of YouTube, this political slice of YouTube, and if the hosts that are getting the most engagement are male, and they're starting conversations that are dictating the political conversations and discourse on different platforms, that's very dangerous. So think about this. If my audience is 90% male, which it is, um, and I am a man on, on YouTube who has, who puts themselves out as being, you know, a leftist. And I want to make sure that our audience gets to a million subscribers in the next two months. I'm going to focus on the things that I know are going to get my audience riled up. And I'm going to find people in Washington that I'm angry about for not doing what I thought that they were going to do. And so they start getting riled up and engaged, and they start sharing my content. And then they go over to other platforms and they talk about what it is I'm saying in a good way or bad way, and maybe even echoing what I'm saying on those platforms. So now they're getting more clicks. Maybe they're even starting their own YouTube shows and echoing what I'm saying. And they're getting more clicks and getting monetized. And then the people who are watching are going on Facebook and Twitter and having those conversations with audiences that may not be primarily male. But it is coming from outrage and men. And I say men because the audience is 90% male. These tech companies know how to address it. They know how to show more transparency in the algorithm. They've been called out. Google has been called out for their bias, their racial bias, their gender bias, and they've done nothing. They know that they are building their algorithm and they're making more money off of hate and outrage. But at what cost? You know, Mark Zuckerberg came out with a statement today saying, well, why is it, you know, partisanship is occurring in the U.S., but it's not in other countries? where Facebook is just as po popular or even more so. Well, I'd like to know which countries he's talking about that. Are these countries where there are no parties? Seriously, 
is there, are there many parties? Uh, what does partisanship look like in those countries? Do they have 20 parties? How does partisanship work when you have 20 parties? And you're, you have to build coalitions, you know, every several months or every time there's elections. elections. Or what does it look like in a country where there are no parties? Where there's essentially a dictator? Or maybe just one party, or maybe there's a minor party, but nobody really is part of it because, you know, it, it, look at Turkey. I'm very curious. What does partisanship look like in Turkey where people do use Facebook? I'm very, very curious, Mark. That's a great excuse. And also, if that's the case, then why is it that fascism is on the rise globally? We have a responsibility in the society always. Always, not just when we get called out, not just when regulators start to come in. But if your motive is solely profit and you know that what is profitable, and this is not a new concept, what is profitable is what bleeds. You could also do the responsible thing and make sure that even just shifting your algorithm a little bit so that there's more of a diversity of voices being put out there and, a more, and, 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 and shifting the algorithm so there's a more di diverse audience that's engaging with those voices. I have yet to do the makeup tutorials to make our videos go viral because that's just not who I am. And that's, I think we can do better. Now, are there tricks that you can do to get information out there and break through the algorithm? Absolutely. Call me old fashioned, but I feel like I shouldn't have to sell my soul because that's not what I personally like to do to make sure that this information gets out there. While other hosts that I know and came up with uh, are able to, <laughs> to build their audience off of anger and hate and sitting in their boxers and going into the other room and just talking about whatever without doing any research. I think we have a duty here. I don't know what gets done, um, but I think that we have a duty here. And as we see with, with Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin right now, sometimes the smallest margins, the smallest decisions, smallest bit of regulation can make a huge difference when the stakes are this big. All right, we have a great show today. Uh, we'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to the Nomi He Show. Connor Town O'Neill is a journalist and the producer of the podcast, White Lies. His writing has appeared in New York Magazine, Vulture, Slate, and many other places. Uh, he also is the author of a book that is now out in paperback, Yay My Back, because I carry paperbacks when I'm traveling. <laughs> That's how I get my reading done. Uh, no, but for real, this is uh, a great book. It's called Down Along with That Devil's Bones, A Reckoning with Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy, published by Workman Publishing. Connor Town O'Neill, thank you for joining the Nomiki Show. Welcome. Hey, Nomiki. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Nice to be with you, too. So um, this is fascinating. I, I mean, it's fascinating, but it's also probably more common, the story or these types of stories are more common um, than we're aware of. And that's obviously an area you're working on. But uh, monuments have become all the rage um, on the right and the left. Uh, and, and it's become many Fox News segments, <laughs> as you know. Uh, but it's really hit a nerve. And I, I, maybe 
maybe it's because I, you know, grew up in a community where there wasn't, as far as I know, wasn't one of these big monuments. Um, I never really understood why there was so much pushback on taking down monuments of white supremacists, like Confederates, um, you know, and also why there was so much attachment to keeping, uh, in challenging the legacies of some of our supposed heroes. Um, so, 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 so help me understand, like we, where, what is this rooted in? Where is the anger on the right coming from? And how did you, you know, go down this rabbit hole of, of, of learning about this one person in particular? Yeah. I, so to, to your first question, which is, I think really the crux of this, um, there, the, the argument that they try to make, um, is that these statues are about history and that, you can't you can't destroy our history. You can't erase our history. You know this is like good or bad. It's, it is what it is. You can't. Why would you try and destroy it? But of course, it, monuments aren't history. History is in the archive. History is in the documents. History is you know history lives on whether or not the the statue comes down or not. Right? Like we're still reckoning with the legacy of Robert E. Lee or Nathan Bedford Forrest, even if some of their statues come down. Um, so, so I think that's, you know, it, it, it's pretty easy to see through that argument, but really that's just, um, I, I think that's the argument that's masquerading for something that has a lot more to do with prerogative and control and, and a sense of, of, of who this country is for, um, and, and who should, who should benefit in this country. So, you know, we have these stat when the revolutionary war breaks out, George Washington soldiers take down a statue of King George, right? When when the Allied forces take Germany in World War II, Nazi symbols are removed. Even in 2003, American Marines are, you know, sort of staged this removal of the statue of Saddam Hussein in Baghdad, right? So we know that that losers losers don't get statues. So then why all why these, you know, over a thousand public symbols of the Confederacy if they lost the Civil War? And I think what's important to remember is that even if the Union had a military victory, there the the sort of ideological victory is 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 much more questionable because of course the South is saying to anyone who would listen in all of their documents, this is about slavery. And they're justifying that slavery on the belief that the men and women that they're enslaving are by virtue of their race inferior to them um, in, in a sort of paternalistic way or, 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 or taking care of them. And that ideology is not by no means vanquished at Appomattox and instead um, just, just takes other forms, convict leasing, the war on drugs, school segregation, Jim Crow, you know, all of these other manifestations of it. Um, and and, and, and the, the, the statue's presence there lets us know hmm, this ideological victory isn't, isn't complete yet. So it, it purports to be about history, but it's about, it's about so much more as well. When did um, the statue trend start, uh, meaning honoring Confederate leaders? I mean, forget about Christopher Columbus and, and other folks. Yeah. The, so the Southern Poverty Law Center has, has done a, a lot of good data on this. The Monument Lab also has just released a study. And in and, and each of them, it really reveals a trend. These are not these are not statues that go up in 1866-1867 in the in the immediate aftermath of the war. Instead, what you see are really two big influxes. The first has to do a lot with statues in particular and that comes at the at the turn of the 20th century. And so to just to sort of locate that in time, that's you know after the collapse of reconstruction 
Former Confederates are returning to power. They're implementing Jim Crow. And meanwhile, are hoisting these statues to their heroes or making heroes out of these, you know, Confederate traitors. Um, and and that's the real in first big influx of these statues. And so it's connected to, you know, this moment that, that historians refer to as the nadir of race relations. <laughs> Jim Crow, minstrelsy, very demeaning sort of Sambo imagery is, is, is just flooding, you know, white America. Um of course, it's it's the rise of racial terror lynchings as well. Um, so it, it's just this really dark period that these these monuments are coming out of. The second big kind of bumper crop is in the middle of the 20th century, and that's a lot more with place names, so um, roads and and particularly schools, which of course again is is responding to its particular moment. Again, they're not really about history; they're they're always about the present too. So this is the moment of school integration. And, mm. and and schools, especially in the South, are being created. These so-called um, seg academies or segregation academies, um, where you know the white folks who can afford it are fleeing public schools uh, as they integrate and going to uh, private schools that then bear the names of white supremacists, slave owners, Confederates. Unbelievable. Do you think that folks um, outside of the most extreme, you know, racists? Uh, and white supremacists were aware of it, white white folks in particular? Was there a conversation about it, I guess, is, is the better way of saying it, like a, a, an awareness, you know, through the public? I, I think I think in some cases, yes. But even when it when it doesn't, it, it just shows that it it's it just how that that I that sense of prerogative, that sense of this is my history and it must be mm-hmm. good is so automatic that even when those conversations aren't happening explicitly, the the sort of knee-jerk recourse to yeah. to claim that kind of history, um, I think is just as telling. That that this no, I mean at the this- time though, when like when say a dry, like a, a street was named Robert E. Lee Drive or, or Street, uh the public like were there, were there was there any sort of questioning of this from the community, from people that are not white supremacists, but white, like, I thought that guy lost, wait, it's like <laughs> 75 years later. Why are, why is this our focus right now? <laughs> um, I mean, there's certain, in, in, in terms of Confederate symbols, there's certainly pushback from, from, from the black community. Um, uh, and, and, in and, uh, you know, there, there's certain pushback, but a lot of the public, um, and, and official record of this stuff is, is hailing it and hailing it sometimes in no uncertain terms about the, the racial motivations of it. So one of the statues that I write about in the book is a, this 30 foot bronze equestrian statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, um, that used to be in a park in, in downtown, in downtown in the city. And, and when that statue goes up in 1905, uh, a former Senator gives a speech at the foot of at the unveiling saying, you know, forest legacy will live on so long as there's a drop of Anglo-Saxon blood. Oh uh, my God. The cartoon, the cartoon in the paper is a, a an illustration of the statue. Um, but the forest on, on horseback is wearing his clan hood. Um, and it says, you know, forest rides again. So it's, you know, it was explicit oftentimes. Okay, so who was Forrest? Let's 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 get to the crux of this. Yeah, How did you find right. him? So, okay, so who Forrest is? Um, Forrest, he's born almost exactly two hundred years ago. Some you know neo Confederate folks that I that I met and interviewed along the way just celebrated his two hundredth birthday this summer. Um, so that means that he is he's sort of coming of age as the Deep South 
as uh, sort of as, as as we know it is coming of age. So this is Trail of Tears, Indian Removal Acts, all of that land of the Deep South, Alabama, Mississippi, Western Tennessee, Louisiana is being opened up to plantations and mass, this massive movement, what's called the second middle passage of enslaved people from the upper South are coming down into the deeper South, making millionaires. You know, Missis- the, the, the Mississippi Valley has the highest amount of millionaires per capita wow. when the war breaks out. Um, and Forrest avails himself of that as well. He, he makes millions, by some counts, one of the richest men of the South by operating a, uh, a slave market in Memphis. I mean, literally, you know, literally selling people down the river. Um, uh, uh, over a thousand enslaved men and women are passing through his, his slave market every year in the lead up to the war. So he becomes, he becomes incredibly rich, equips his own cavalry battalion, when the war breaks out. Um, and he's, he has a sort of blue collar appeal to some people. He's unlike Lee, you know, he didn't go to West Point. He hardly went to school at all. Um, he's not illiterate, but he's not, he's not particularly eloquent. He has these sort of hard spun aphorisms. Um, he's, he's known as the untutored genius. Um, and he becomes, uh, the historian Shelby Foote calls him one of the two geniuses to emerge from the war, the other being Lincoln. Um, he becomes the most promoted soldier north or south. Um, but of course, to be heralded as a Confederate soldier um, is a pretty questionable task, right? And he's, uh, and and that's certainly true for him. He's accused of committing war crimes. Um, during the Civil War, he, he and his men slaughtered almost 200 surrendering black troops at Fort Pillow, uh, which is just, just north of Memphis. Um, so, oh you know, he's, he's, he's really attached to these moments of, of racial violence, slave trading, the Fort Pillow massacre. After the war, that trend continues. He becomes the first grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. He operates a, a convict leasing plantation just outside of Memphis, a practice what, what, known. What is that? What is that? Convict leasing. It's um, Historians refer to it sort of as slavery by another name. So... Uh, basically if you were once these, these Jim Crow laws known as black codes, um, are passed in the aftermath of the civil war, um, they essentially criminalize blackness. You could be arrested for not having a job, for being drunk, just for being black, essentially. Sounds like laws that still exist. (laughs) Yeah. Right. this is the bedrock, this is the bedrock of mass incarceration basically. Um, and, and you would be, so, so you would be, you would be incarcerated and then, um, basically rented out to people to to work um to work agriculture jobs basically as a way of replacing the the lost labor force after emancipation and so he's bound up in all of these moments slave trading the massacre of black soldiers leading the clan in during reconstruction operating convict leasing system i mean he is just he is so bound up in all of these manifestations of white supremacy Um, but he is Again, he's not likely uh, necessarily. He's he's not um, he's not sort of f- front of mind when you think of um, Confederate generals. And I certainly, before I started this book, I didn't really know much about him beyond you know a, a cheap joke in that Tom Hanks movie, Forrest Gump. Um, in, instead, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania, but I've been living in Alabama for almost a decade now. And and I moved when I moved to Alabama, there were all of these 50th anniversaries of the civil rights movement happening, and I kind of felt like I was being invited to try and make sense of of Alabama through the lens of these anniversaries and, 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 and through the lens of the movement. And so I'm in Selma 
on the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. That's the attack by Alabama police officers on nonviolent marchers on the, the Edmund Pettus Bridge there. John Lewis at the head of the line it gets a fractured skull in the attack. Um, and it really provides the kind of tailwind to pass the, the Voting Rights Act. So 50 years later, President Obama, the first black president, is in town to mark the occasion. 40,000 other, 40, other people show up, and, and I'm there. And it, parking is a nightmare. Selma's this little city, you know, 40,000 extra people. It just sort of shuts down downtown. And so I'm, I'm looking around for a, a place to park. And I think, oh, I know, the cemetery, right? Selma's one of those cities with the classic Southern cemeteries. I uh, pull in and immediately see these signs that say, Confederate Memorial Circle closed, no trespassing which is just catnip for a reporter, right? Like, obviously you have to walk over there. So I walk over and just very credulously ask this group of people who are arms crossed, scowling at me, like, what are y'all doing here? Um, and come to learn this group who calls themselves the Friends of Forest had spent the better part of the last two decades fighting about this statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest that they had put up. Now, given his biography, you would think putting up a statue of Forrest would be controversial anywhere. But to do it in Selma and, and, and how synonymous it is with the civil rights movement and with racial violence that took place there during the civil rights movement, you'd think it would, you know, all the more offensive. But come to learn, they put up that statue on the very same week that, 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 that Selma inaugurated its first black mayor. So it was just wow. extremely controversial. All of this fighting takes place. The statue is eventually stolen. Um, but that only kicks off more fighting about whether or not they can replace it. Uh, a federal lawsuit breaks out that the Friends of Forest win. And when I meet them in 2015, they had just won in federal court. They were going to be able to put up another statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest. And, and were there that day to sort of thumb their nose at the, um, at the event that was taking place, but to also get ready to, to put up this, this second statue of Forrest. And just the dissonance of that encounter, neo-Confederates on this yeah. major civil rights anniversary, raised all of these questions for me about who Forrest was, what it meant to put up a statue to him, what it meant to do so in 2015. Um, and, and so those are some of the, the questions that I then led me to, to this book. So I'm curious, like, when when they when they um, went to the courts, I mean, were they trying to put a statue on public property or on private property? Well, that was one of the questions. Um, it the the city owns the cemetery, but there was this question about whether or not the city had deeded this Confederate section of the cemetery to the United Daughters of the Confederacy. But there was no deed, so it was very unclear who could decide what would happen there. If the city council could decide, um, it wasn't going to go up, but the UDC was saying, no, this is ours. And it's interesting, the, the, the woman who started the UDC chapter in Selma in the aftermath of the war uh, is this woman named Elodie Todd Dawson, who was half-sisters with Mary Todd Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln's wife. Whoa. So they took very Whoa. diverging paths, right? Like one, one, you know, is the the wife of the great emancipator, and the other is this fire breathing secessionist. Oh um, well, we know, all who, have that. I, know, <laughs> I, I, know. I mean, it, we we all do. <laughs> yeah. I have a cousin who got married on Robert E. Lee Drive in Virginia, and I'm like, what? <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I just jumped to her <laughs> wedding, and I just said. Even the even the pastor, sorry, as I know, even the the priest or I don't know, she's born again Christian, so whatever the the reverend, I guess, um, 
was like, this is an interesting place to have a wedding. Even he was like, I don't feel comfortable <laughs> with this. <laughs> yeah, it's intense. But it, but again, it's just a testimony to it. it's 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 all around us. All around us. We're I mean, that was my actually my big my big wake up call was going to that wedding. Um, she lives in Virginia, and uh, you know, she's not. I, I I don't know what her personal beliefs are, but she's outwardly not you know political at all. But I think she was just like, this is an interesting location having a wedding at a plantation. And I walked in with my father and we were like, oh my God, I don't even know what to do with this. This is, it's, and and there were memorabilia, there were photos on the wall um, of Confederate times and soldiers. And it was, it was really a living monument um, to the Confederacy. And it was beautiful, uh, the building, beautiful plantation, um, former plantation, but really just jarring and, and shocking to me. And, and especially because I live in New York, I was like, how is this possible? And of course, the, the fights over the memorials um, have emerged from that. But, you know, if you are not around that, if you're not immersed in that, I don't think there's a, a as you didn't, you didn't, you weren't aware of what was going on in Selma until you discovered it. You're just, it's, it, it was obsessive in my mind. I mean, I walked away from that situation thinking, I don't even know if my cousin was aware of what was happening there because I just don't think she's a politically, you know, aware person. But, um, it, like I walked away, like, these are people who are to this, they're obsessed. It's, 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 yeah. it's, it's not, it's not a club. It's not like some sort of, you know, civil war reenactment thing, which I think was, was going on in my, you know, what I thought they were doing. These are people who are obsessed. And so I, that leads me to the next question, which is, which is, I there this this is a cultural, this is much bigger, I think, than like you know KKK members in 2021, right? So where do the KKK members land on the spectrum, and where do the people who just want to, who are part of keeping these monuments alive, and you know taking over plantations and having weddings, you know, with photos on the wall, whatever, whatever they do in their obsessive minds. Like where on the spectrum are these folks? Are those folks part of the KKK? Is the KKK bigger than we think or know? I mean, we learned so much about this just through police, um, you know, in the last, since the George Floyd murder, so many people realized the FBI, you know, coming forward and saying there's organized white supremacy more than you're even aware of in police departments. And I think that was a big wake up call for folks. So how, how large is this and where is it coming from? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And I think it really spans, it really spans the, um, the spectrum. I mean, there's certain, there's certainly folks, um, who are affiliated, uh, if not with the Klan, then with violent white supremacist groups. A lot of the folks that I talked to, um, were, were affiliated with uh, a group called the League of the South, um, which is, uh, in no uncertain terms, and a, a white nationalist group responsible for instigating a lot of the the, the violence in Charlottesville, um, you know, the the um, driving the car down the street. That that guy wasn't in the League of the South, but the 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 all the all of those scenes of of the 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 fighting in the park before that that led the the governor to shut it down. A lot of that was instigated by this group, the League of the South, who who marched. Uh, who sort of marched into the fray, you know, in in this kind of like wedge formation. Um, so, so there are definitely folks who are affiliated with groups like that who are just you know really hard bitten um, white supremacists. There are other folks though who come to it. Um, I think more so in in a way that is just a, a testament to how 
segregated our memory is, how, how segregated our sense of the past is. So the kinds of folks who who think it's just kind of innocent to uh, have a wedding in a, at a plantation, right? It's just the way it is. It's beautiful, you know, or my my great granddaddy fought in the Civil War and, and I want to honor him. Just, the, you know, it's what it, it's these these case studies in what ta Coates calls the dream, you know, white folks dreaming and, and having no sense of themselves as um, what's been done in our name in the past, how that has created the present that we live in and benefit from. Um, it, it's just sort of this oblivion that they're in. Um, the, the great historian W.J. Cash, whose book, The Mind of the South, is, you know, this this great sort of psychological case study of, of white Southerners. Um, he, he talks about it as a cloud cuckoo land, that it's just the, our, our sense of, of who we are and how we came to be um, and, and what the price of that ticket was uh, is just totally lost on us. We, I think it has a lot to do with American exceptionalism, really. Yes. Like we we think of ourselves as the greatest country in the world, democracy, freedom, liberty, yeah. um, and 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 kind of take that to mean that, that that our history must flatter us that there can't be anything bad, um, or or that might indict us or might lead us to believe that maybe um, we've been the antagonists at moment or we might be responsible for rectifying um, some of the things that we've done in our past and continue to do in our present. I mean, I think that's it, right? Like the folks pushing back against the 1619 project from the yeah. New York times are all of them in the clan. No, but, but they do have this sense of prerogative that, that our history cannot indict us. Our history cannot um, lead us to support the kind of progressive interventionist policies that might seek to rectify some of these historical injuries and instead say, no, that's, that's communism. That's, right. you know, that's propaganda. That's Marxism, whatever it is, you know, that's bad history. Um, you hate white people, that kind of thing is just, it, 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 it comes from this sense of, I like the way things are, the way things are benefited me and, and they benefit me because I deserve it because I'm a white American. And that's it. I think ultimately I'm, I'm thinking about my cousin who is not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. She, you know, she's, she's Greek. Um, her family did not have a story like so many of these. I mean, I don't even know if she knows her own history, to be honest. Um, and what it took for, for, you know, her family members, my family members uh, to come over. Um, with that being said, I think that there's the, the dream is, is so much part of this, but the, what comes to my mind is people don't want to face their privilege. They don't want to, they don't want to face the fact that they are in a position that was of privilege that was built off the backs. Maybe they weren't personally responsible for it or even complicit in it. Although I think right now there's a lot of complacency, but they are essentially in their position because it was built off the backs of slavery, injustice, slaughters, you know, humanitarian issues, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's, you know, there's a range of those who just kind of want to tune it out. Mm -hmm. um, and, and those who think that American exceptionalism is for whatever reason, you know, just because we're bigger and better. I'm not understanding that capitalism is racism, yeah. in my opinion. So, Connor, um, super fascinating. I unfortunately we have to jump to our our, our next interview, but uh, we'd love to have you back on again. You have um, done really exceptional work here, and uh, it's out in paperback now. So go check out down along with that Devil's Bones: A Reckoning with Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy. And of course, uh, Connor is a producer of the podcast White Lies. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. It's been great. We'll be right back to talk about. Kirsten Cinema. <laughs> Kirsten Cinema. <laughs>
Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Oh, Senator Cinema, man. If she weren't so dangerous, she'd just be so cute. I think that's what she's going for. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm excited that Andrew Perez is joining us today. He's a senior editor at The Daily Poster. He has a piece out in Jacobin right now about everyone's favorite senator, um, Kirsten Cinema, and it's titled, Senators Need to Hear from Their Constituents. Oh, do they? I'm so curious. Do they care? Uh, Andrew, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay. So the, the thing about this whole situation, I don't think I need to share like what's been going on with Kirsten Cinema. I mean, if you're on our show, I, I'm guessing that you've probably been paying attention to the news. But Senator Cinema, um, what really blows my mind is like the normal tools of democracy, shame, sometimes shame works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, incentives, you know, keeping somebody in office, all these sorts of things just don't seem to be working on her. And I say this because like, okay, so she's being shamed a lot right now. She's being uh, followed around as is Joe Manchin uh, on planes and bathrooms, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, her office is being swarmed with calls you know, normie Democrats are like blasting her now on, you know, CNN's even like, come on, lady. Um, you know, Joe Biden is not really having it, which says a lot because he's not somebody to really pick fights with people. Um, and, you know, m different than, than, than Manchin, she could very well lose her general election. I'm not even talking about her, you know, being primaried from the left. And if it were just about money, I would be like, you don't need to go through all this. You're, if, if you want to make a lot of money after the Senate, like that just happens. That I mean, you could be a congressman for one term or a woman for one term and make a lot of money. So I, it just seems like the incentive structure is not, there's, it's like she's like on a different level or in a different, I, I don't know what's going on in her mind. So the premise of this piece being, you know, that they need to listen to her constituents, I, that sounds very normal, um, but it doesn't seem to be working for her. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's kind of hard to speculate here. I, I do think that money has to be a pretty big motivator here. Um, only because, you know, she has been, you know, like kind of a run of the mill Democrat on a lot of issues, or at least like back the party on, you know, sort of its overall platform. And like in 2018, you know, she ran on a, I mean, she, she sold herself as an independent, but she still, supported the bulk of the Democratic platform. Um, you know, I think there's some thought that she's, you know, trying to, like, carve out this, like, John McCain-like, uh, you know, image. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think when you look at the stuff that, you know, she's not making any public pronouncements here, but um, at all, like, not talking to activists, not talking to reporters. But if you, like, read through the lines of the stories that that are talking about what her interests are in the reconciliation bill, like what her problems are with the bill, you know, every, every single time it's, it's like this, it's an issue that threatens, uh, you know, big industry or very wealthy people, you know, the pharmaceutical, uh, D Democrats drug pricing measure is obviously a, a big example, um, which would allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices and significantly lower drug prices for, for, you know, everyone. Um, and, you know, she is, has, you know, sort of reversed positions on this. Um, like she ran some ads talking about uh, wanting to lower drug prices in her 2018 campaign during the primary. Um, and, you know, it's, she's now parceling out these little baby scoops to, to Beltway news outlets. Um, 
where, you know, they're citing, you know, two, two or three sources familiar with the senator's thinking. Um, and, you know, it's, it's because if you were to like tell people, oh, I, I, you know, don't think that Medicare should negotiate drug prices, they would say, like, are you okay? What's wrong with you? Why did right. you lie to us? Um, they're, they're deeply unpopular positions. You know, she also is opposed to like any new tax hikes. That is the most popular part of the democratic agenda, right? Is the idea of increasing taxes on the wealthy. Like th- those are the two most popular provisions in this reconciliation bill are punishing wealthy people who have been ripping everyone off um, and, you know, paying a significantly lower tax rate than anyone else. And, you know, recouping some of the money from big pharma that, that people have to pay them every year. Um, so, yeah. So, so you found this, um, this audio and, and it's really interesting because this is an audio from when she was in the green party. This isn't, you know, audio from when she was running for Congress, uh, to the left of some other fairly left, uh, Democrats in her first primary. This is an audio from two years ago or a year. It's from six months ago. And what does the audio say? And this, and by the way, there's audio from this time period that was already leaked out before. So mm-hmm. can you remind folks what, what this event was and, and what was being said there? Yeah. So, you know, we like crashed uh, an event held by the National Restaurant Association in April. Um, they invited both uh, Kirsten Cinema and, and Joe Manchin there to speak right after they played a prominent role in, um, you know, killing the uh, $15 minimum wage provision in, in Democrats' COVID relief bill. And um, yeah, they had cinema on by phone and she was, you know, asked by their chief lobbyist, who I'm going to say his wife literally raises money for Kirsten Cinema's campaigns. Um, like on, on the staff or just as like a bundler? A, a fundraising firm. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, she she helps lead a fundraising firm that works for cinema. Um, what is it called? Just let's just let's just throw it out there so people know. Fulkerson Kennedy, Got I it. believe. Um, yeah, so they uh, they had her on and and are asking her like, what advice would you give to you know our restaurant owners members as they go lobby Capitol Hill like mm-hmm. today and this week? Like it was it was like a like you know information session for people who are about to go become citizen lobbyists for the restaurant industry. That's an, so there's like, like, like there's citizen lobbyists for the restaurant industry. Like what kind of constituency they have? Like, come on. Yeah. It's restaurant <laughs> owners. It's, it's yeah. restaurant owners, operators, executives. Um, and you know, so they, she was asked to give advice to them and she said that it was really important that senators hear from their constituents, um, that, you know, hearing from constituents early and often makes a huge difference. She was talking about how it's always important to have, that meeting, you know, to, to, to share your position on an issue and to explain why, why you have that position. Um, but you know, here we are six months later, no one can get a meeting with her unless you're a lobbyist, you know, a lobbyist or a donor, no one, no one, her constituents can't get meetings. It's why they are trailing her around, you know, Capitol Hill and, or sorry, they're actually going into, you know, her class, her class in Arizona, um, you know, following her into the bathroom, trying to talk to her on airplanes, trying to talk to her on the way out of the airport. It's because, you know, these are people from groups that actually like rallied Mm -hmm. votes for her in 2018. Knocked on doors for her, a lot yeah. of um, you know members mm-hmm. who've been fighting the the SB 1070 laws, the, the the laws targeting undocumented people in in Arizona, of course. Um, yeah. 
Is there a sense of what's happening with fellow lawmakers, whether it's fellow senators or Arizona lawmakers? I mean, I'm very curious how someone like a Raul Grijalva, um, you know, from from Arizona, who's who's very progressive in you know Southern Tucson, um, how he's interacting, like especially since he has this base of of of, of Latinos in particular in his district that knocked on doors for cinema and helped Biden and cinema win this election, this last election. It was very much part of the win. Yeah. Honestly, we reached out a couple, maybe a week or two ago to all of the <laughs> Arizona's Congress people to see if they had a comment on like how she is, you know, looking to blow up this legislation. And we did not hear just total crickets. Um, but, you know, it does seem like lawmakers are starting to get a little annoyed with her. It, do, it does seem that way. I mean, you know, it keeps being framed as like, she won't even tell us what she's, you know, opposed to. It won't even tell us what she wants. But like, you know, that's not entirely true, right? She is telling Beltway Papers exactly what she wants. And it's, you know, no penalties for big pharma, uh, you know, uh, not so interested in, you know, expanding uh, Medicare to include dental uh, vision and hearing. I'm sure, that, um, I'm sure the seniors in Arizona really love that one. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's really, it's top of their priority list is not having those items be included in Medicare. Well, I mean, uh, and, and, sorry, just, just on that note, um, because I kind of, I, I want to get into like the gray areas of this. Are there industries that are fighting back? Like f- industries that you wouldn't normally think, like for instance, an association of, I, I, I'm not sure, like uh, th- th- nursing, I mean, I'm, they're not tied into Medicare, but you know they represent people who uh, need the money to pay for private nursing homes. Um, and it just seems like there, there would be a strategy from other industries to kind of go after these ones that are affecting their bottom lines. Yeah. I mean, you know, you hear like hospital lobbying groups and insurance lobbying groups complain about big pharma, but like at the end of the day, they are all in this together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, the for-profit health, for-profit healthcare industry is united together in this scam, right? Where they get to keep bleeding Americans dry. Because if you started taking money from pharma, where does it stop? Right. right like right, then you right. might, you know, tell insurance companies that they have to cover people's medical procedures. You might, right. you know, um, <laughs> that there are 20% administrative overhead that's been written into, you know, legislation is actually not appropriate. So yeah, it's, it's, they, they all are in this together and hospitals obviously are like some of the biggest drivers of, of healthcare costs as well, because they just charge tons of money. Um, okay. Aside from official comment, are there any sort of like whispers that you're hearing or people who've gone on, on background, um, from, you know, Capitol Hill, any of these offices in Arizona about her behavior. And I mean, like you said, they're growing frustrated, but is there anything, is anybody officially saying this is, she's doing this because of this one industry or she has these goals? I think we're just all trying to get into the psyche of why. Is it worth this? You're probably not going to get reelected. Like I said, you're not getting reelected. You could do this or not do this and you'll still get a job with wherever you want to go. I mean, what do you want to like, like is Elon Musk offering you a place on, on the moon? Like, I don't know. What is that? For yeah. 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 I mean, you know, we're, we're definitely trying to hear from some of these people. Um, haven't, haven't really heard anything good yet, but we, you know, we'd love to hear more. Um, any, anyone who has a tip about Kirsten cinema, please, you know, <laughs> hit us up. Yeah. Um, same with Joe Manchin, same, but you know, same, same with any of these lawmakers, you know, we want to cover, 
what's actually happening here. Um, yeah, exactly. And in terms of um, Joe Manchin and Cinema's interactions together, what what is their are, are they doing this as a team? Obviously, they they, they have different negotiating tactics, but um, and things that they're putting on the table or just not putting on the table. But what is their what does it seem like? You know, they're conspiring on together. Like, how are they coordinated? Are they? Yeah. Um, I mean, they're both, you know, talking about the Medicare provisions, yeah. um, the, the expansion of Medicare. They're both sort of shooting that down a little. Um, but, you know, I think the truth is there is power in two of them blocking legislation. It would be a little more difficult for one of them to be, you know, just one senator, you know, being the, being the <laughs> you know, main roadblock to, you know, what is joe biden's bill right this is honestly it's the joe biden agenda bill it's not you know bernie's helping helping get it through but it's not it's the democratic platform being written into a bill um you know all these lawmakers supported it so it's it's a lot harder for you know just one person to 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 block it it there is some strength in having two of them um last just to go back when did this turn start? We all hear about the glory days of of Susan Cinema protesting Joe Lieberman and being part of the Green Party, and then you know I, I'm background here. I'm I went to school in Arizona. I have family in Arizona, so you know I even remember knowing her in 2006 and seeing a very different Kirsten Cinema then um, when she was when she was in the legislature. So when did this turn happen? Before she's in the Senate? After? Did she start taking certain money? Like I'm fascinated because I feel like this is also, we as progressives need to be aware of how this happens so that we can prevent it in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it started when she was in the house, you know, definitely. Um, she's sort of allied with like the payday lending industry in the house. She took a lot of money from them. Um, you know, she was like one of the kind of conservative Democrats who would, you know, take, uh, take shots at like some like Dodd-Frank, uh, Wall Street reform, you know, uh, policies that as they were being implemented. Um, but you know, that was, those are things you can do like kind of quietly, right? Like no one really has any kind of, the, the broader public is not aware, is not intimately familiar with like the provisions in Dodd-Frank. Um, it's, you know, she never was playing like a central role in trying to spike, party priorities. You know, at the same time, Democrats were not really, you know, fully, uh, they, they didn't have full control of government at that time like they do now, right? Like this is a, a limited time that Democrats have where they have the presidency, the Senate and Congress, um, even if it's, you know, very limited control, right? If it's, if, if it's, uh, they have very small margins, they have no margins really in the Senate at all. Yeah. Um, but it, it is also the time when you could get your agenda enacted. Um, that, that time is limited, right? Like the truth is it could end any day. If any democratic Senator dies, um, it, it could end tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and they only have a very small margin in the house too. So it's, you know, she is now holding up the party's priorities at the only time that, you know, we might see where they have the power to enact an agenda and get it, get it passed into law. Um, who is the biggest industry that's backing her? Well, so there have been a bunch of ads um, in in Arizona being uh, run by this group called Center Forward. Um, the last time we checked, they'd spent like six hundred thousand um, dollars 
Um, and it is a group that is literally led by like lobbyists, including lobbyists for big pharma, like pharma, the, the power, the powerful lobbying group. And they, they've also received substantial funding from pharma. They've received like 25% of their money, four and a half million dollars from pharma between 2016 and 2019. And we, we just don't have more recent tax returns. They haven't had to file them yet. Um, so yeah, you know, it's it's a pharma front group. They're running all these ads right now talking about how Kirsten Cinema is independent and uh, also, you know, a, a great hero for trying to pass this infrastructure legislation, the 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 like, you know, roads and bridges pieces yeah. that that we've been talking about so much. It's fascinating. Um are they pouring money into any others? I mean, I the, I look at like Arizona and I compare it to New Jersey, which is, you know, pharma heaven, like it's and I know Cory Booker uh, said that he was no longer going to take pharmaceutical money. Is he? Are there others? I mean, it just—it just. I understand the power of putting pharma money into a, a vote, a, a person who is able to change, you know, legislative future, um, even if their state isn't like a big pharma state. But are there others like that? Yeah, well, so there were a handful of Democrats. There were, you know, a few. There were four Democrats who who have voted down the the party's drug pricing legislation in committees um, over the past, you know, I guess a few weeks ago. Um, And I can tell you who they are. It's Scott Peters from California, Kurt Schrader from Oregon, Kathleen Rice from New York, uh, Stephanie Murphy in uh, Florida. There are two more, you know, all of those lawmakers have now signed on to this kind of alternative drug pricing bill that is just phenomenally weaker than, than what's being discussed here. Um, Josh Gottheimer has signed on to that from New Jersey. Lou Correa has signed on to it as well from California. And Senator Forward coincidentally started running digital ads backing all of these six lawmakers just you know a few weeks ago. Just only them. Um, no one else. They're not spending on anyone other than those six Oz lawmakers Biden. and cinema. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the people responsible for and contributing to the demise of humankind. I'm not even going to say the Republic. It's like, I mean, I want to start running ads. I wish Sunrise, you know, could run ads and be like, hope your drug, you know, prices were worth it, pharma, because you're also, you know, contributing to to climate change. You're contributing to so many other things. I mean, that's the messaging. It's like, it might be about this one thing for you guys, but it's really about something much bigger. Um, Andrew, Thank you so much for for joining us, for giving us the breakdown, answering some of these questions. This is more just been like, I'm curious who's going to know the stuff that I've been looking, like wondering about uh, Kirsten Cinema because there's so much coverage of her. But, you know, I just want to know at the end of the day, who's giving her the money? When did she turn? Why did she turn? What is this really all about? Um, The human side of her, because at the end of the day, the senators are human. They have egos. And, and, you know, if they're, I don't know, it doesn't seem like a, doesn't seem like Biden's really getting his way with her. So yeah, everyone else is going to work on it. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you. No, I love it. Sunset Lake CBD. Sunset Lake CBD is pretty much, it's the only CBD that I've ever used and loved and seemed like it worked. I remember when the trend started, I was like, what is CBD? Everybody's talking about it. And I tried it. I tried it from a bodega. I spent like a hundred bucks on a tincture and it tasted horrible. And then I was like, I don't know what this does. This isn't calming me down. It's supposed to help with stress and pains and aches. None of it worked. And so I just gave up on it. And then I was scolded by Sam Cedar. Uh, 
<laughs> He's like, no, 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 this stuff works. I use it all the time. It helps me go to sleep. And that was that was the, that was the music to my ears. Was helps me go to sleep. So of course I tried Sunset Lake CBD, and it did help me sleep. Help me go to sleep. It helped me stay asleep, which is a big deal. I toss and turn because of my aches and pains. I have sciatica because I can't stay asleep. I have this like sleep monitor, as you guys know, to track it. And the days that I don't take Sunset Lake CBD, I don't do the tincture. I see that I wake up. And many times I'll wake up in the middle of the night and drink some tincture because I forgot to earlier. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm in Vermont to your door. They have all types of products. They offer tinctures, gummies, uh, fudge, salves, coffee, lotions, all designed to help with your stress, your aches, and your pains, and your sleep. It is like, I don't know how they make their product. I guess it just shows you when you create a pure product, it's good. Um, but what, what else would you expect? They actually changed a, flipped a farm in Vermont, a Ben and Jerry's farm. That's really good juju. And decided to diversify and grow premium hemp there. Um, so not only is the product great, the company is great. They're contributing to sustainable agriculture in a rural community. When you work with them, when you support them, you're actually supporting rural economies and creating meaningful employment in the community. The majority of the company is owned by their employees. Their their uh, minimum wage, hello, Kirsten Cinema, is $15 an hour. And on top of all that, they support independent media like our show, The Nomi Key Show, The Majority Report, and The David Pakman Show. Um, there's all sorts of new products out there right now. They've got the dog biscuits that have three simple ingredients, peanut butter, pumpkin, oat flour. Uh, and now they have a new tincture. This is a big deal. Uh, it's a tincture that has 1,200 milligrams of CBD oil infused with 90 milligrams of melatonin. So not only does it help you stay asleep with the CBD, but it helps you go to sleep with the melatonin. I am going to be using this product this weekend because next week I'm going to Scotland, or this weekend I'm going to Scotland to cover the climate summit. And... I immediately go into work. So I'm going to have to like deal with the time zone differences very, very quickly. Uh, so I'm, ver I'm looking forward to, to trying it out. I haven't tried the melatonin version yet. All right. But if you want to go and order some products, you get 20% off. If you type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, at sunsetlakecbd.com, you get 20% off of your entire order. Type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, at sunsetlakecbd.com. All right. We will be back with our amazing panel. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. We have our favorite panel. No, I mean, all of my all of the panels are great, but I do love these two because I've known them longer than uh, the Nomi Key Show. We have Arun Chowdhury, who is in an undisclosed location, an undisclosed kitchen, somewhere in Eastern Europe doing undisclosed things, as usual, with a microphone that matches mine. Um, and of course, yes, Rab, who is in a very disclosed location. <laughs> Look at that. That's not a- Yeah, man. So beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Made to you last. In Europe, they go to churches. You have some, we have some pretty amazing legislatures and government uh, buildings in our country. I got to say that. Rep Rab is representing the 200th district of Pennsylvania, the North, Northwest Philly, a very progressive district and looking sharp today. I just want to go right into it because I know we don't have a lot of time with Rep Rab. He's in session and he might be like pulled out. So, I could not be more excited. Did I inspire this legislation because I don't shut up about it, Rep. Rab? I'm just curious. 
you can always, your fingerprints are on everything. Is it? Okay. All right. So what is this legislation? Because I'm not trying to take credit at all, but I'm really excited about it. Credit can be shared generously, but simply put, it's a very reasonable uh, uh, piece of legislation that would uh, mandate vasectomies uh, for all uh, cis men uh, within six weeks of turning 40 or uh, within six weeks of siring their third child, whichever comes first. Additionally, uh, we would have a $10,000 award uh, reward for anyone who can um, uh, report, successfully mm, report important. any yeah. of those inseminators uh, who are non-compliant. Now, if they're non-compliant, they have to pay a hefty fee. And because I believe in equity, we can have a sliding scale um, so that, you know, the really wealthy uh, men uh, can pay as, as a proportion of their household income. Uh, but really, the point here is um, that we need to regulate what men are doing with their bodies. We, want, we don't want them to do anything irresponsible. We just want to make sure that the state um, is uh, stewarding their decisions <laughs> in, a, in a way that is in line with our priorities here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And values. Yes. And values. Yes, sir. That is absolutely right, Arun, because, you know, we, we want uh, people's uh, decisions about their families, about their reproductive choices to be in line with what their elected officials deem reasonable. So, um, yeah, that's all it is. Listen, I mean, Rep. Rob, we, we, government is just a reflection of the community. I mean, we are a community. And if, if we want to have a community that is responsible and cares about its people and cares about its babies, we need to make sure that the families are prepared to have and raise children. And we can't just have men out there, um, you know, going after women, whether they're married or not, or have kids or not. Although you said three, three kids. I, Listen, I, I'd like to lobby you to lower that age. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and how many, I mean, how do you know? How do you know if if a man has had three kids? I mean, sometimes a man doesn't know how many well, kids they have had. We're going to have, um, we'll probably be issuing vasectomy ID cards. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so that's, well, you know, see, this is why I love yeah. coming on the show because you. The white pass. You, you spawn so much, you know, creativity to influence, you know, um, this is a seminal moment, right? And we have to really uh, grab this issue by the drop <laughs> of its neck. And, and, you two are and, too much. Move forward in, in good faith uh, about a very important issue. So, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Run. I'm going to break character for a second and just say I love character. this tactic generally because, like, it is – people often say, you know, you sit there and you say, when you're explaining, you're losing. When you're explaining, you're losing. What do you mean? And this is what I mean, right? You're not explaining. You're just demonstrating. Uh, and I think, you know, this is a really good example of that as a tactic. Uh, the Church of Satan, I think, famously also is is uh, sort of a, a quick one to just sort of uh, show by doing. And uh, I, I think just it's a really, really cool effort. And I hope it's replicated other places. I mean, how are your colleagues reacting? Um, so women are generally ecstatic who are pro-choice. Uh, yes. The women who are anti-choice um, believe I am the spawn of Satan. Um, I've never gotten as many death threats 
against me, my my family, okay. my staff. Welcome. Well, I'm sorry, I don't yeah. mean to meet this is a yeah. joke, but like welcome to being a woman. Now people get right. well look <laughs> listen, as a black progressive elected from Philly, you get a this lot. is the norm. And this month is when I normally get the most anyway, because I introduce and reintroduce my bill to abolish Columbus Day. Um, I just issued um, a, a public memo announcing my bill to officially replace it with Indigenous Peoples Day of, of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, okay. Working with indigenous groups um, across the state. Um, and uh, the other thing I want to mention, because I got to jump back on the floor, is uh, a couple days ago I circulated um, a memo on a forthcoming bill that requires uh transparency and accountability of police organizations, namely Fraternal Order of Police across Pennsylvania, where they have to provide um, information about their major expenses, their contributions, the demography of their membership in comparison to the communities that um, they're supposed to protect and serve, uh, air quotes, and um, and uh, what type of counseling they're going to provide and guidance for those folks who have uh, misconduct on the records. Um, so um, I- I've been pretty busy the past few days. Um, you got to let us know that, that, that that's a great segue into our next topic, which we're going to get to after you join us. But please let us know what happens. Uh, what is the name of the vasectomy bill? And again, how do I lobby? I would like to lobby certain parts of it. Um, I feel like you're. I feel like you're being a little, a, a little loose. It's just. Um, <laughs> it's a little incrementalist, in my opinion. I've been using the, the uh, hashtag snip sip with the scissors uh, icon. So it doesn't have a name. Like my colleague in Illinois, uh, Kelly Cassidy, who introduced the Texas Act. Um, by the way, she is the sister-in-law of Newt Gingrich, who literally just last night blasted me on Twitter. So That's, it's all just. It's almost like they're all connected and they all have conversations to each other and they all take the same money from the Heritage Foundation and the Koch brothers and, you know. Who knows what KKK offspring? Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, Rep. Rab, I'm excited. Uh, if you, how, how can people support you? Can they sign petitions? Can are you going to have a rally? Uh, I mean, are, are there any men's rights groups involved? Because I feel like this is actually a great way for a man to just truly not be. Um, I mean, like, if, if nothing is more empowering to a man than knowing that they can just have sex and have no consequences and not have to yeah, you know, man. pay for the consequences. To me, that just seems like freedom. Freedom. Yeah. Well, as someone who got a vasectomy 13 years ago, um, I've never had to talk about this on the House floor because they're not legislating um, my bodily autonomy. But I've used this moment um, as um, someone who believes in reproductive justice, as a father, um, as a cis man and as someone who's elected to exercise my reproductive rights by getting a vasectomy to raise awareness about the gender double standard that exists in this state in this in this country because this wouldn't be this would not get any news if I did another anti-woman bill because that's the norm but once you get anywhere near the gonads of a dude it's world war 3 love it Ron, do you have any final questions uh, no, I mean, as uh, as a human with a vasectomy, also, uh, oh, wow. <laughs> who didn't a, uh... wait until three, <laughs> I, I, I actually think this is going to have some nice conversations where people will be like, you know, both folks on the panel had vasectomies. They seem okay. Like, it's a it very hurt, reasonable right? thing, gentlemen. I think you should all think about it. I was it. in and out they, in 20 rate, minutes. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Not it's a big absolutely deal. not a big deal. Yeah. 
So we need to we need to lower the snowflake um, subset. Uh, That's of, what I'm saying. Of cisgender men and just go do it. Do it. Yeah. And it's reversible too, right? And it is, it is reversible. Probably not for as long as I've had mine, but yes, for most people it can be reversible. But, um, and you know, by the way, I want to mention, um, some of my, um, pro birth, um, adversaries were saying, you know, well, you know, what about reversal? I'm like, if they get a, a notarized letter from their spouse, along with the appropriate, you know, panel of, of politicians, they can choose to apply to get a reversal of their vasectomy. So I want to know Absolutely. that their, their process. concerns are of you know paramount to me. Are you listening? I, I, you need to be on John Oliver. You need to get on um, John Stewart's new show. Like this need there needs to be a massive campaign. Like I said, twenty what year is it? 20, 2028, I'm running for president on forced vasectomies. That is it. Hashtag. For, and by the way, that's it's incremental. My. I, I think I think that we are going to solve so many issues beyond vasectomies when uh, we go a little bit further. But that has to do with you know testosterone and what leads to having when you have a bunch of men in a legislature with a lot of testosterone. Like what kind of what kind of um, legislation does that you know creativity? Where's are you guys working together? Are you fighting with each other? Just I'm anti-testosterone. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> All right, I'm not going there because every time I start talking about this, I lose like a hundred subscribers, guys. <laughs> just, just as you know. Yeah, you'll be surprised. So I guess who's on YouTube, dudes? <laughs> yeah. you, you should be. You will not be surprised how many nominally pro-choice men are very um, their awkward responses or silence to this satirical legislation, and that's ah, satirical. That raised, and, yeah, but that is that's kind of the point. If even so-called allies are silent or awkwardly, you know, like that means that these are conversations we have to have in the in the public domain. Yeah, that's agreed. Right. Rep Rab, get back to business. Thank you for all you do. Beautiful legislature. So many bad really, legislators. Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> right. So so long, folks. All right. Take care. Back when you could kill people to make buildings, you know, they're nice. <laughs> <laughs> they still do that in some parts of the country. Uh, <laughs> and most of the UAE, I think, every day. But, you know, they're, they're allies. Oh, so. without a doubt. Those stories, They're allies. Man. They're allies. You know? Oh, my gosh. I, that's a whole other topic we should talk about at some point because I feel like yeah. it's not discussed enough in the U.S. And when you go abroad, it's it's in papers every day about No, and they're the still UAE's having uh, – and now I am going to be the one who's confusing different places or whatever. But, like, when they construct these stadiums and things for, like, the World Cup and stuff, it's yeah. these, you know, these crazy air-conditioned stadiums they shouldn't make anywhere. It's actually also labor issues that are so akin to slavery that to even start parsing it out is being a bit ridiculous, like actual modern slavery. I don't want to bury the lead now. I mean, obviously we can talk about this more at length, um, you know, in the future, but, but, but just, just describe like where for the UA in particular, like they're basically bringing in. Oh, South Asians. So a lot of folks from India and Pakistan, and these are folks who are like brought to work and then put back in like a windowless box, you know, and are sometimes working, you know, in incredibly hot conditions, like all day, like deadly conditions, like something that traditionally no one who lives in the Middle East would do, because why would you go outside during a day when it's blisteringly hot? The answer is because you have some insane job where they like take your passport, you know, they take your documentation. I mean, this stuff is. And they're promised. I mean, they're promised 
like, oh, you're going to have great economic opportunities. And they show up and they're like, wait, I have a box where I'm living with 30 other men. I might have a cot. I may not. I might have a sleeping bag. I don't. And no freedom of movement. Just brought, yeah, brought to work and from work and that's it. The box to the box, back to the box. Language barriers. Yeah, it's, this is pretty, pretty, pretty scary. All right. Um, I want to shift gears because Rep. Rab did bring something up and and you brought it up too. Uh, The the police unions have tremendous power in this country. Uh, Notably, there's there's a long history of the corruption of the police unions of, I mean, I say quote corruption um, and racism of the police unions in Philadelphia. Uh, very, very famously so. And then in New York, um, New York City, just to remind folks, the Benevolence uh, Association in New York, uh, they actually doxed Mayor de Blasio's daughter uh, during the height of the George Floyd. And this is a mayor who has literally like never done anything. (laughs) Like he's so afraid of the police unions. And now we understand why. Uh, Well, uh, just just in the last forty eight hours, the FBI has raided um, an NYPD union, and the, the 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 president of that union has resigned. Let's play this clip, and I want to get your response, Ron. Absolutely. Them's a lot of papers. <laughs> That's a lot of paperwork. This is the Sergeant's Benevolent Association, uh, and Ed Mullins is the former union president. He stepped down this morning. Ah, poor Shocking. Washington lives in Long Island. Yeah. So I think what's really interesting about this is uh, love cop on cop action. Real fun. Always cool when they go after each other. No, but for real. Um, You know, what what is this indicative of? I mean, it's one thing to have organized white supremacy, which the FBI has been investigating. We're not sure what's been going on here, but he stepped down. Yeah. I mean, I think for one of these things to actually happen, I think it's less sort of, ah, there's a mood in the country and so uh, accountability and the police unions. I think it's less that and something so specific has happened that is sort of very obviously egregious that these mechanisms have actually kicked into motion. Because if there's anything that, you know, this last six months uh, since the George Floyd, maybe it's been, you know, actually a year since these, you know, big protests all over the world in support of police reform, that has not happened. There has been sort of an absolute legislative failure uh, to move on this. And so I don't think it's political pressure to make these things happen. I think there's something specific here that has happened that is enough to warrant these rusty mechanisms that don't want to have to do the thing to do the thing. It's interesting because, you know, uh, when the George Floyd protests started to, to the movement really, um, you know, took, took hold and took shape. Learning that the FBI, I mean, we were aware because we've been reporting on this for a while, but learning the FBI uh, had been investigating white supremacy in many of these police departments across the country. And that's just important to note that these, this is the union, not the police department. So the FBI has been investigating different police departments around the country for organized white supremacy. Yeah. An organization in a legal term literally means like there's entities, there's money flowing. It's not just like a group of people who like meet and have conversations about other white supremacists. This is actual like structural right. stuff here. Um, and but but I think what's 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 interesting is, but this is maybe what it does is it leads to tips. And so even though the movements are separate from these actual investigations, the movements may empower people within institutions that know that there's stuff happening to tip off the FBI on certain things. Um, 
And, and I think that's, you know, where, where this kind of change can possibly happen, but the FBI is not perfect. <laughs> um, the FBI no, no, today no, clearly not. Is, is, you know, it's not to be fair. The FBI is not the same FBI of 50 years ago when they were just, you know, shooting up Gunning activists. down people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and you, and speaking of unions, but, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm like, well, how do you feel like these entity? I'm, do you know enough about how the FBI kind of looks into these sorts of bad actors? Um, is there some sort of, I mean, are they really culturally different? Like, are there white supremacists in the FBI? I, I know it sounds, sounds silly, but but uh, I, look, I, we don't know these things. I mean, this is this is like I, there's definitely like white supremacists in every branch of law enforcement to whatever degree. I think it's less the sort of more federal you get, uh, and sort of more shocking. Uh, the more sort of down to the local beats you get. But what I do think is sort of useful in this happening, right? Even, you know, however whistleblowers, if that's the impulse here, feel more empowered. However anyone does, yes, the system matters, but also these individuals matter, right? These are super families, like bordering on mafia stuff, these kind, you know, like these police unions, right? They have very little resemblance to a labor union. I just want to make sure, like, I know your audience knows that, but let's just step back again, right? This is not exactly like a labor union. It's more like a protection racket, you know, shut up. You haven't done anything wrong. Just sit there. We'll come take care of you uh, kind of thing. And so I do think one of the things, I know I dropped into some sort of accent for a second there. <laughs> I was, that was my cop accent. Well, you're so from, wait, one are of the you things, from Long Island or from, from <laughs> I'm from Westchester. But when West I saw Port Chester. Washington, okay, I immediately, I, I, you know, like saw like. Um, I, no, so I, I do think that there, there is like a few of these people, like, you know, a, a finite number of these people who should be knocked out of these positions because they're steeped in this culture of sort of, it's not even, I mean, it is white supremacy, but it's like bircherism, right? It's this sort of yeah, weird right. old school East Coast sort of Nixonian version of what it is yeah. to be a jerk. Uh, that's very specific, right? And sort of strange. Uh, but I, this is that what fuels at it. And it, it will, and while sort of bad things will be replicated in the police department because there are systemic problems, it will be a bit better because some of these folks have just have accumulated an enormous amount of institutional power and are just at the nerve center of so many different weird things that when you connect them together, add up to more trouble than they are on their own, which is, right, a culture of silence around the police, which is a culture of camaraderie in the police, which, you know, uh, around racism and and uh, all of these things. That's really interesting. And it, it, it you know, it's, it's why like cutting off the head of the snake is, is so important because it's not that there isn't going to be white supremacy or bad actions and bad behaviors. Yeah, new um, things will pop up, but they will not be as entrenched. It, that's right. It's like, okay, Governor Cuomo stepped down. There are plenty of other neoliberals, but there's nobody's Governor Cuomo. <laughs> Governor Cuomo yeah, had a but nobody who way. can like, you know, like make up like, you know, an organization overnight just to tank like a working class candidate, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's, he a, does. Mm. he's He's a master of this. Um, all right, let's let's uh, let's shift gears because uh, part of the show we talked about Facebook and the power of Facebook, and you know, and I'm I talked about on the show just to give you background. Um, it's not just Facebook; it's it's all of these platforms, and we 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 definitely hone in on yeah. Facebook because of the election of Donald Trump, and and it's very evil, and I'm not you know discounting that, especially since and Zuckerberg, he's just bad, and so he's some, he, he's just way more hateable, you know, like Jack yeah. somehow hipsters his way through things a little better, like yeah, nobody likes yeah. Zuck. 
nobody likes Zuck and like Google's just too mega for us to understand even how it works anymore. Um, but you know, these platforms are dangerous, uh, in that they really don't have any accountability whatsoever. I mean, they're, 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 there's, it's crazy to me that after at this point, when did I sign up for Facebook? 2004, I was in college, I was a sophomore in college. Um, yeah. I mean, this is Pretty almost early. a 20 year old. Yeah. This is almost a 20. And, and and this is like, you know, six months after it was hot or not or whatever the hell it was where it was like judging. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but, but, but it was, this is we're almost 20 years into this project and 30 with Google and 15 with Twitter and nine with Instagram. And yet we are still having these conversations about like how to hold them accountable. And our government officials like literally don't even know what they're saying when they're asking these questions. So, I mean, yeah. yeah. And I'm sympathetic to all of it, but I think when I'm on, you know, a show like yours or on the news and they're like, shouldn't this be like more regulated or shut down to figure out what's going on to steal a, a phrase from Donald Trump. And like, they are too big to fail in this really important organizing way, you know? And I think, you know, for instance, it was election day yesterday when Facebook, WhatsApp and everything went down in Italy, which was okay because it went down just as polls were closing. Uh, And so all of the kind of WhatsApp organizing had already happened over the last two days. Wait, 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 wait. Let me me just, let me put a pin in this really quick, real quick. For folks who don't know, WhatsApp is a tool that is used internationally way more in the U.S. Like pick a country, they're on WhatsApp. I I mean, I had to reinstall WhatsApp when I was in Europe. Yeah, it's a messenger service, but that is ubiquitous, not just uh, outside the U.S., but also in immigrant communities in the U.S. We had an excellent WhatsApp strategy in Houston to turn out uh, a a lot of, uh, especially folks from Asia. Uh, But, you know, so it's not just sort of digital advertising, but it is that also. These are the tools uh, that we use to organize, and they have been around, as you say, so long that Google has replaced, you know, the encyclopedia. You don't buy an encyclopedia. Uh, Facebook has replaced the classifieds in the public square and the place that you would go to actually make yourself heard and talk to your relatives and talk to all kinds of folks. And so we can't just sort of sideline these things and say they can't happen in elections and these people are bad actors. We actually have to actively also be like, well, what are the real services being rendered here? It's not just selling your data. There's something useful happening there. And can that be replicated in a different way? You know, should internet providers be required the way they are required to do C-SPAN? These are like our airwaves. We want to be educated as well as entertained. If you want to use our digital airwaves, should you have to provide a classified service everywhere that you provide the internet? Should that be something that comes with your internet service? I think yes. Uh, Should that automatically come with a way to digitally enroll to vote? Like all of a sudden there's all kinds of things you could do. It could be inside the post office if that is still around. I have been gone for, you know, a year from the U.S. So maybe you don't have a post office anymore. I hope. Uh, But uh, there is this tension in between like the horrors that we see behind the scenes at Facebook every day, but also the utility of this. Without this, there is sort of no, there's like no Bernie Sanders, right? Like you just to put it in a really blunt way, you cannot organize your way to winning these difficult elections to win. Well, I mean, without and, online and, organizing, and no, I think you're right, but it also is not, and this is kind of what I touched on at the beginning. It's it's not the same utility that it was 
when Bernie Sanders like snuck through and won. It is, and you know this because you work in elections, but it is fundamentally much more difficult now to break through, partly because obviously there are more people who are running and it's more saturated space, but also the algorithms have shifted. I mean, it is not yeah. the same. Like, it, I mean, it's drastically different. And, and organic and, growth has essentially been halted. I mean, uh, 75% right. of your own followers will not see your content unless you pay for folks to see it. So these are folks even who are your friends, your family, or have decided to follow uh, an official page you do. They're actually not being served the thing they said that they wanted unless you pay to show it to them. But even then, it's still not hitting the same numbers that it used to. Um, you know, when I, when I, uh, uh, I'm just trying to think of it. In 2016, we were posting things and, and the numbers that were being released were, um, were not accurate that that came out later that year that, you know, the, the, the millions of people that were supposedly watching my videos were not millions, but I can tell you one thing, they weren't what they are now. <laughs> They're not yeah. 75 people. Um, and you know, my Facebook page would, was, was growing every single time I go on the news, I would gain, you know, a couple thousand followers, for instance. Uh, now it's been frozen for, I don't know. I don't care. I don't even put energy into it. I'm, I'm sorry, guys on Facebook are watching this, but I just, it's, it's not. No, it's been a fairly universal phenomenon that, right. that people have seen. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. And uh, when it comes back to the, so the Italian elections, if you are a progressive working class candidate running for a city council seat, Italian elections are a little bit complicated. Like, you know, you vote for the mayor and the kind of big ones, and then you have a preference for you write in somebody's name if you want them to win. Unless, you, if you don't do that, then the party, just whoever their top favorites are, win. So anyone who's interesting to you is usually someone you have to write in. So this is something that, you know, you win with 600 votes, with 10, you know, with 1,000 votes. Uh, and so that you can you count those votes and you count them on WhatsApp, right? These are my 20 people in this group. Has everybody gone to the poll yet? Let me mark off if you've done it. This is how it's done. And so, uh, yeah, it was a really scary moment when it goes down. Uh, and so I was with everyone where you're like, yeah, screw Facebook. You know, <laughs> we'll just hang out on Twitter this afternoon. But at the same time, you're like, no, there's other, it's, it's, it's much bigger than Facebook. It's Facebook Enterprises as a monopoly. Um, let's just play a little clip from this hearing because I... I want to get back to the regulation for a second because, you know, too big to fail is is is, is often used, and and you know, there's conversations about public utility. But um, let's play this clip because I, I think this kind of highlights the challenges that we face. Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen on regulating misinformation and hateful content. This past March, Mark Zuckerberg told Congress, "Quote." Others claim that algorithms feed us content that makes us angry because it's good for business. But that's, that's not, accurate, not accurate. I believe that the division we oh see today is primarily the result of a that's political a, that is an environment edit. that drives that was a decision. apart. It's not Facebook. It's human nature, is what he's saying. I have a lot of empathy for Mark. <sighs> like Mark has been working on Facebook since he was like 19 years old, maybe 18 years old. Like imagine spending your entire life building a thing which people are saying is dangerous. I think, so Mark's statements are very important in that he's highlighting that we have always had conflict. But the thing that Facebook is doing is it used to be the ways that we would connect with each other, the ways we learn about information about the world was there was always a gatekeeper somewhere in between. 
Mark has never set out to make a hateful platform, but he has allowed choices to be made where the side effects of those choices are that hateful polarizing content gets more distribution, more reach. The company will tell you that it's taken down a lot of content. Mm -hmm. 31 million pieces of hate speech, 3,000 accounts that were spreading COVID misinformation. Mm -hmm. They put warnings on more than 190 million pieces of COVID information. I think that's a fascinating trade-off thing. So they say they've taken down 30 million pieces of content. They say they've put warnings on 190 pieces of content. Earlier in this interview, we talked about the idea that they were only detecting three to 5% of hate speech, mm. right? Let's imagine if they are already putting warnings on 190 million pieces of COVID content, if they're only catching 10%, or let's be generous, 20% of pieces of COVID content, that means there's a billion pieces of COVID content they missed. Think about that. That's crazy. Let's pause it for a second. Two billion pieces of content they missed. Pause it for a second. So I just want to oh, 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 shit. Can we hold that spot wherever that spot was um, on the back end? So keep in mind here. This is I think this is the, the and we'll get to this afterwards. But just I, while mm. she's talking, keep in mind audience, and I know you know this, Arun. It's not that there is a billion pieces of misinformation, disinformation, hateful content that was not caught and caught early. That's important too. Um, because how long does it stay up there before they catch it and take it down? It's that it the whole idea of virality is that it's up there and then it grows. So even if you're just getting 20%, that billion, if it's going viral and it's incentivized with the algorithm to go viral, it could easily, within a year, that type of content could go to 3 billion or 5 and, billion or whatever. And let me just jump in on that. Uh, and uh, agree with you with a yes and rather than a no but. But yes and we thank her for her service. It's never easy. I'm sure this was hard. Lots of friends disappointed. You know, you're, you're not on a team anymore. Uh, but they're like she is still a creature of tech. And you can hear in the way, you know, it's a mindset. It's an understanding of how the world works. And it's an incorrect one that's going to kill us all. So, you, you know, even here sort of talking about the scale and it's like, well, there used to be a gatekeeper. It's like, no, there was never a gatekeeper. Maybe there was like, there was there was never that. It just it was not industrialized. It was not at this scale, right? It's like, a, yeah, it used to be fine for people to cut trees down. Like as many trees as real people could cut down was fine. It's when you get machines to do it in a mass way that it happens so fast that you can actually destroy more than can create itself. Like this sort of scale matters and how this stuff works at scale matters. And tech folks are looking for these scale solutions, right? What's the climate change solution going to be? You ask a tech person, it's going to be to drop particles in the air to reflect sunlight because, you know, we can just keep adding things to make the, to make the environment right. It, 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 this is the sickness that infects all of it. And so so the idea that, oh, we just need Facebook, but with a better gatekeeper who can hit better percentages, uh, misunderstands the scale of what yeah. they actually work in and misunderstands, I think, sort of the sickness that's in Silicon Valley thinking. Um. You know, and 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 just okay. Well, let's 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 keep playing the clip, and then we'll address some of Mark's. <laughs> yeah, I got worked up. Sorry, it's okay. Think about again. That. Thank her for that's her service. Crazy. Two two billion pieces of content they missed, <laughs> and that's the part of the conversation that Mark is not talking about, or Facebook is not talking about. Is right now we have no 
independent transparency mechanisms that allow us to see what Facebook is doing internally. And we have seen from things like the community enforcement report that when Facebook is allowed to create its own homework, it picks metrics that are in its own benefit. And the consequences, they can say we get 94% of hate speech, and then their internal documents say we get 3 to 5% of hate speech. We can't govern that. For Facebook's response. Interesting. Yeah, she nailed right. it there, though. Yeah, yeah. Yes. You know, yeah, which is you can just dress up this pig any way you want when you have enough data, right? Well, of course. You don't you don't regulate yourself. I mean, this is it, this is the, one of the oldest tricks in in government is uh, take it to a committee, pick who goes in that committee so that they, you know, reflect your interest and then come back with a report that's, you know, not that scathing against the thing that's being And then blame the consumer. Somehow the they're consumer. littering. Exactly. They're doing this. They're doing that. Yeah, it's not systemic. It's they're not just not recycling wide. properly. You're like, why yeah. are you putting things in plastic? Just stop that. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> just stop using um, straws. That'll save. I'm not saying that straws obviously kill wildlife. I'm not straws. Sure. We just stepped in a big one there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't mean. <laughs> we don't need to fight about straws. Yeah, yeah. No, but I do remember. As I know, I do remember when I ran for public advocate. Uh, I ran against a guy who was like the climate guy, and I was like, okay. he didn't understand anything about climate. He was like, why? I'm uh, all for banning uh, straws. And that's really going to help our environment. I'm like, I'm sorry. Um, when I'm drinking my coffee underwater in New York, I'm really glad that this was made of avocado. <laughs> yeah. That was his solution to climate change. And like there were 17 candidates in New York City, the largest city in the country. And that was their solution for climate change. We're doing great guys. Um, all right. But this is, this is the response from Mark Zuckerberg today. I'm just going to cut out a little bit. I'm reading it from Robozuck. Here we go. All right. I'm just, this is just a chunk, but bear with me for a second. Yeah. Small Many chunk because he's terrifying. Oh my God. It's, I mean, this is a very long statement. So it's about a paragraph and a half. Many of the claims, her claims, don't make any sense. If we wanted to ignore research, why would we create an industry leading research program to understand these important issues in the first place. If we didn't care about fighting harmful content, then why would we employ so many more people dedicated to this than any other company in our space, even ones larger than us? Okay, it's not the battle between shitty companies here, by the way, guys. If we wanted to hide our results, why would we have established an industry-leading standard for transparency and reporting on what we're doing? And if social media were as responsible for polarizing society as some people claim, then why are we seeing polarization increase in the US while it stays flat or declines in many countries, oh, because we'll get to that in a second, with just as heavy use of social media around the world, because <laughs> they're not democracies. Um, at the heart of these accusations is this idea that we prioritize profit over safety and well-being. That's just not true. For example, one move that has been ca called into question is when we introduce the meaningful capitals, meaningful social inter interactions change to our feed. The change showed fewer viral videos and more... Uh, content from friends and family. That's what's dangerous, by the way, guys. That's the root of how this works. That's my editorialism, um, mm -hmm. which we did, did, which we did, knowing it would mean people spent less time in Facebook. But what research suggested is it was the right thing for people's well-being. Is that something a company's focus on profits over people would be doing? Okay, first off, cool. You don't like your profits? Yes. Go national. Let's 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 like make you a public utility. I'm just saying, like if that's not what it, then fine. You wouldn't be no, but like keeping the patient alive so you can keep like getting money off it. Every parasite knows how to do that. He's like, I didn't kill the patient. You're like, great, yeah. cool. <laughs> you know? But but what kills me about this is. So this, uh, you and I both under, understand this from a political standpoint, and and to tie back to the 2016 elections in Cambridge Analytica, that is the heart of it. 
when you have people-to-people interactions rather than a viral video from now this uh, telling you about X, Y, Z, when it is actual human beings sharing misinformation, their beliefs, it is more trusted. It is politics 101. Human-to-human content is more effective than buying a billion dollars in ads. And that's, I mean, the heart of it. So, I, I, and and this is really just like the conversation I wanted to have in the beginning, which is, and what you touched on with tech is, this is about humans. They have all the money in the world. They're doing all the research and hiring all these firms to tap into how humans think. But the one part that they seem to not understand is how hate is profitable, how hate and misogyny are intertwined. I'm saying misogyny because it is in the fascist playbook for a reason. There's, there's a form of hate and misogyny that go together. They're not always, you know, misogyny always has hate. Hate doesn't always have misogyny. I'll just say that. But these two things, which of course stems racism and, and uh, science deny, and these are, these are communities that all seem to overlap. But it's based on human interaction and human conversations that were not invented yesterday. This didn't start with yeah. Facebook. This is how fascists rise. This is, if you look at the communication of fascists from a hundred years ago or 80 years ago, it's really interesting that there's a lot of similarities. It's just, it's scalable now, which is what you're saying. Why is that Facebook does not seem to want to address what is human psychology, basic human psychology that we all learn for the most part, uh, who study politics on how to, you know, how to influence people and businesses learn. Coca-Cola got it. I mean, it's really maddening to watch him go through sort of this long list uh, of things that he thinks are helpful or has come with. And you're just like, all of these questions you're asking have really simple answers and you're not even addressing the right question. You know, he's like, who could have known this would happen and that would happen. And it's sort of looking for answers in all the wrong places and I think what I think what has to happen here is probably the an old fashioned like media monopoly breakup is the best way. I think people are calling for the breakup. Uh, you know, I'm not just saying this selfishly because we want those extra preference votes in the Italian elections, but breaking off WhatsApp, you know, number would would be a great start. But there are no sort of. I don't know how to say it, except that he's sort of asking these questions in this way of like sort of astonishment and like, you know, what can we do against like inevitable hate that rises up? And it's like the same thing people have always done because this isn't anything new and you don't need to be so sort of aw shucks dazzled by, by it all. He's just not the man for this moment for his own company. If I was a shareholder of Facebook, I'd be like, do we really necessarily want this guy? I think that's, I mean, within one year, I feel like that's where it's going to end up. Um, Yeah, maybe. I mean, the except Peter Thiel is. Don't forget. <laughs> Let's be oh, real God. about who this company is. You know, yeah. these are these are not your uh, your icons for for democracy. Um, I think it, it. You know, the argument might like maybe they somebody internally might want to leak this out if it comes out. Um, this, the issues that they're facing is it's 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 not that it's too big to fail. It's like the algorithm is so overwritten. Like you can't, like, what are you going to do? Just scrap the algorithm and start over? Or, I mean, it's, it's, it's too complicated at this point. Like, how do you change the business model of a company? It's not even business model. It's, 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 what do you do? You just, it's, it's built off of that and it just keeps growing. And that's, 
Very hard. And this is probably one of, uh, I mean, look, we're two people who don't know that much about tech, like, you know, going deep into tech and I'm going to take us in a place that we have no business being. But it's sort of like the real thing you worry about with AI is not like the machine comes alive and Terminator or whatever and comes after us. It's that it works like shit because we taught it and we're too lazy to fix it just because we don't feel like it. it not because it has like armed guards and has like become self-aware because we just don't feel like dealing with it and people are making money, so who cares? And then we're dead from climate change and it's all right. We're already there. Um, Arun, thanks for joining for, for this uh Yeah, let's bring the mood down. Let's bring it down sometimes, you know? It's okay. <laughs> we'll just play a clip of, you know, men responding to... Rep Rav's bill. Yes, <laughs> just laugh. nothing but a, a vasectomy montage. Everyone enjoy. <laughs> um, uh, Brad, can we work on that for next week? Just have a montage of, of responses. That'd be great. Thanks. Okay. See you next week, Ron. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right. Thanks to everybody for joining the Nomi Key Show this Wednesday. Uh, make sure to check us out on Friday for Fem Friday. We have a great show. And of course, the committee program on Mondays here on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube at 3 p.m. and you can go check them out on their Patreon uh, and other places, I believe Twitch as well. And of course, if you're not aware already, uh, Rockfin, we have this special show that we're doing, TNS Live, on Tuesday nights on Rockfin at 8 p.m. Uh, it is usually, it's live, it's always live. Uh, we're going to be taking questions, so make sure to throw questions at me and I will answer them on air um, through Rockfin. You can send them to me wherever, you know, the Nomi Key Show at gmail.com. Uh, you can send to put them in this chat here, wherever you are, wherever you're listening or watching this show. But it is a special show. It's exclusive to Rockfin. We had Tom Hartman on this week. It was a really great show. I definitely recommend uh, watching it. And we had Steven Donziger on, who is now uh, who has now been prosecuted by the judge and, uh, and and sentenced to six months in prison. Yes, that is the capitalist uh, judicial system that we live in. All right, everybody, stay in solidarity. We will see you on Friday. No Mickey show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Mickey Show.